Okay, so this is a quick overview of uh, the Reformation to set us up for the clip. Uh, since you guys have already finished your take-home essays, um, then that would allow me to assume that you've been through the entire set of readings. Um, so this would be a chance just to clarify what this business of the Reformation is all about. Okay, so once we get through the Middle Ages, and we know that the Catholic Church is a tremendously powerful institution, uh, as Van Doren described uh, the Middle Ages as being God-obsessed and the object of that obsession with God is the Catholic Church. And we saw the film Cathedral, if you recall, uh, and that uh, Caroline Berg in the film Cathedral said a number of things about um, the degree to which the church was the central focus of people's lives um, and so on and so forth. And so we come to this point in the 1500s when the Renaissance is well underway um, and as the woman Dale Kent said in the film about the Medici and about Galileo, in fact, the, the real explosion of art has already subsided to a certain extent by the 1500s, although some of the great artists still have their work to do, like Michelangelo and da Vinci. Um, and the scientific revolution is beginning to gain steam, and Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so at that moment in the early 1500s, a key and very uh, spontaneous and coincidental event takes place, and that is the trip by Martin Luther, this young German, very devout, very pious, very religious monk um, living in Germany. He makes his pilgrimage to Rome, which is this great and tremendous exciting event in his life, to go see Mother Church. And the, the longer he stays in Rome, the more horrified he becomes at what he's seeing in Rome. And that's where we pick up the story of what happens with him. Okay, so what are the events that lead to the Reformation, the Protestant, Protestant protest, Protestant Reformation? So there's theological and political trouble within the church. The church has been spending too much time trying to control the non-church affairs of Europe and fighting with the monarchs over power and land and money and wealth and everything else. There's an increasing secularization within the church itself. They're becoming more concerned with worldly issues rather than simply uh, uh, theological issues of heaven and hell and whether you, uh, what, what are the um, specifics of um, existing within the church and following its rules and so on and so forth. A, a lust for power. Um, concern over uh, papal and clerical behavior, and this is a reference that you're going to hear in the film to little boys jumping out of cakes. Uh, nasty sort of crack about some of the things that the popes, some of the popes were doing in the papal palaces, corruptions of kinds that are just almost beyond belief. Um, if you want to read about those, there's a great book called um, A World Lit Only by Fire by William Manchester parts of which are almost difficult to read because of the, the, the true corruptions of some of the popes that were doing things, assassinations, bizarre sexual practices, things like that, things you wouldn't really associate with churchmen. Uh, but this is going on. And then, of course, the Renaissance has really um, taken, you know, as, as gained steam, and so therefore that's putting pressure on the church as well. Okay? So, mm, we know from Burke's film yesterday on the printing press that it's the indulgences that really upsets Martin Luther more than anything else. But it, it seems pretty apparent when you read through Martin Luther's work 
and you study him carefully, that it wasn't just the indulgences that were upsetting him. Once he came back from Rome after this trip, uh, he, he was thoroughly dis disillusioned with the church in general um, and began to really fret about what was happening to his own people, his own members of his parish, and whether or not their um, religious uh, theology, whether their religious underpinnings were being undermined by formal religion. But nevertheless, it's the indulgence that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we know that story pretty well and how they are printed by monks uh, and other copyists in that time period in the late 1400s and early 1500s, but they can't keep up with the demand. And along comes Gutenberg with his movable type and develops an opportunity for the church to print them en masse. They're uh, making so much money off of this that they're able to pay artists like Michelangelo and Leonardo and uh, Bramate and others to build the Vatican and fill it with art and other churches in Florence and Rome, etc. Um, and that there is a precipitous moment where the church decides to cast its eye on Germany where all those good hardworking people are making money up there but also worrying about their salvation and it's an indulgence episode in Germany that causes this whole thing to happen with Martin Luther. Okay, So church corruption, you can see this is the Vatican Mother Church which it's, with its arms extended out around the flock. Um, and this is truly the grandest uh, church, basilica, cathedral in all of the world. And it, not only its building and the dome that was put on the top that was, that was designed by Michelangelo, and all of the sculptures and all the artwork inside and everything, all of this is costing a tremendous amount of money, ergo the sale of indulgences to raise that kind of funds. So a particular indulgence sale by a guy named Johann Tetzel, who leaves Rome and goes to Germany to set up this indulgence event and to sell it to the people of Germany, including the town of Wittenberg, is what kicks this whole thing off. And this is one of his indulgences signed by him, again, allowing you less time in purgatory before you go to heaven, you know, that holding place, or even remitting your sins altogether so that you could go to heaven, uh, or absolving you for some period of time, whatever the case may be, there's a lot of creativity in these indulgences. But here's Martin Luther, and he says, here I stand, this is wrong, absolutely wrong. And as he sees these indulgences being printed en masse, he begins to formulate his response to it. And so the response, which comes on October 31st, Halloween in 1517, is the 95 Thesis. And this is a bronze copy of it uh, on the door of the church in Wittenberg. But again, as you saw from the film yesterday, it was the practice, uh, academic practice, a theological practice to nail up treatises on things and then it was like a bulletin board and people would come by and they would read it and then there would be a discussion. This was common. It wasn't unusual for people to nail things on the doors of various places, but for him to nail this set of protests, 95 of them, on, the, on this church door uh, was significant, but we know from the film yesterday it may have been totally insignificant had the printing press not allowed him to reprint this thing. It might have just gotten rained on and or ripped down and tramped around in the mud or thrown away or something and who knows maybe nothing would have happened but that's one of the questions that we're looking at is whether or not the church was so ripe for corruption that somebody was going to kick off a reformation of the church itself okay so 
the major concepts in the 95 thesis. There are a number of them, but the one that I put in the center is the most important. That what Martin Luther said, this is a paraphrase, is that the Pope does not have the authority to remit sin, to absolve you of sin, to allow your sin to go away, to forgive you of sin. He simply doesn't have that authority. He's God's representative on earth, but he is not the son of God, and he doesn't have the power to do this. Now, this is a time bomb for the church to say that the pope was not the ultimate authority to do whatever he pleases was like saying that the president of the United States is really not the president of the United States and doesn't have the power to carry out the laws as the Constitution says he does. I mean, this was just really wild stuff. And perhaps the most important idea that he was trying to get across is that the indulgences were demonstrating that the church was no longer trying to save souls. It was simply fishing for wealth. It was fishing for riches. But there are a number of other things that he was also talking about as well. Um, that repentance, when you repent and when you repent in front of the Lord, you do it from your own heart. You don't do it with somebody in between you, a priest or a bishop. That, that really what he's saying throughout all of this is that your relationship to God is one-on-one -on -one, and only God can know what is in your heart. And this is shocking to the church because what's the point of having all these priests and bishops and and, and other intermediaries who hear your confession and absolve you of sin and give you, tell you to say seven Hail Marys and you're okay with it and all of that. What's the point of having all that if your true relationship is with God? And by the way, if you really want to know the Word of God, what do you need to do? Get your hands on the Word of God. And then what do you need to do? You have to be able to read. And if you can read the Bible, you don't need a priest anymore. If you don't need a priest anymore, who needs the church? This is shocking stuff. Very logical to a lot of people who felt that the church had gotten out of control. And this was the leverage that they were going to use to, to go after the Catholic Church um, and to push it more into the background. Okay? All right. So these are the major concepts. And when I get this thing sorted out, well, that was a nice arrow that came up there. Okay. When I get that sorted out, you'll have uh, the PowerPoint to go back to. Okay, so it's Pope Leo X that he directs the 95 Thesis to. Um, and then he takes that extra step of copying them and disseminating them, as Burke said yesterday, within a month. It was all over Europe. And it is this Pope who, wow, isn't that cool? His Pope who uh, takes, after a, a rather long argument with Martin Luther, takes the ultimate step and excommunicates him, which is the greatest nuclear weapon that the Pope can throw out there, can explode. He simply says to you, I cast you out of the church. And if you're cast out of the church, you're just a sheep with nothing. And you're completely vulnerable to the wiles of Satan, and chances are you're on your way to hell. You cannot be cast out of the church. And so in excommunicating Martin Luther, he uses the nuclear weapon, perhaps in a case where he didn't really need to, but there you go. However, Martin Luther, unlike Galileo, did not come to Rome to get his excommunication document or to face the Inquisition or the Pope. He stayed in Germany, far away. So that forced the Pope to send this document of excommunication to Germany. Curiously, on the way, as you find out in the film, the guy, uh, the messenger who's carrying this excommunication document, has many, many copies of that document. And as he goes, he kind of drops them off here and there 
along the way. And people picked him up and go, wow, Martin Luther has been excommunicated. But Martin Luther never gets the document. Well, I shouldn't say never. He doesn't get the document for a very, very long time. Long enough for some time to pass and for other things to carry on and all of that. Uh, but eventually, he does get the document and he burns it. Okay, so fine, you've been excommunicated. Maybe you can run off to Scandinavia and stay far enough away never to get the document. But to finally receive it and then to burn it, that's the ultimate decline. Okay? And apparently this is the spot where he burned it. There's this little rock that commemorates the moment uh, where he actually uh, burns the excommunication document. Yeah? Not quite there yet. Coming up. Okay. So, in the meantime, as you recall, the church is now in competition and has been for a couple hundred years with the secular authorities. Um, and that one secular authority, Charles V, who's the ruling monarch of the Germanic um, kingdoms, chooses, uh, he's, he's pretty, pretty scared, or uh, maybe not scared, he's very concerned about this conflict that Mar one of his own, Martin Luther, is having with the Pope. But nevertheless, he sees this as a moment to step up and challenge the Pope. And so he brings Martin Luther in front of the so-called Diet of Worms, which is a, a special commission that's been, I know, strange, yeah, gathered together to consider this issue. And he, he tells Martin Luther, look, you've got to give this up. Go back. State to the Pope. I'm sorry. Give it up. I'm going to recant. And Martin Luther says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. He just refuses to give up on this belief that is now fully stated in the 95 Thesis and additional writings that he's already done. So in the end, Charles V's inquiry at the Diet of Rome results in Charles essentially hiding Martin Luther. Um, he doesn't give him up to the Pope, uh, which in and of itself is perhaps an, perhaps an act of courage. And so he um, puts him into a sort of a house arrest in uh, Warburg Castle, and this is where he lives and writes for um, a long time. But eventually, Martin Luther would go back to Wittenberg would go back to his church and would found his school, out of which would come the first iteration of Protestantism, which is Lutheranism. Anybody here know anybody who's in the Lutheran church? Who? Are you? You, you went to, oh, there you go. Okay, so there you go. Here it is. This is your moment of Genesis. There's a Lutheran church right across the school from Punahou, uh, on, the, on the far side, it's that old wooden church right by Dominus Street and the outside or the far end, the, uh, the Cocoa Head um, Gate out there. And sometime if you really want to, it's very special. On every single night for the last almost 30 years, every single Sunday night at 9 o'clock, there are about 17, 15 to 17 Lutheran ministers from around the, the, from all the churches in Honolulu on the island who gather together and sing the monastic Compline, which is the last prayer that's done for monks before they go to bed at night. And it's really where they beseech the Lord to protect them from the horrible things that can happen during the night, whatever those are. The succubi will arrive, you know, the little devils that come and make you do things you shouldn't do. Um, and anyway, 
So they, they do it in the dark by candlelight. And you sit in this old wooden Lutheran church and it's like total chicken skin for 25 minutes. It's only 25 minutes long. It's a complete mass that's sung. It's actually everything is, is sung. So sometime you should, you should go see that. It's quite, it's one of the small treasures that nobody knows about. I've gone to it a dozen times and there's never been more than five people in there. They don't do it as a spectacle. They do it as it's what they do, and you can go and see it anytime you want. Yeah. So why did they have like Lutheran churches uh -huh. have priests? Um, no, they do not. They're not called priests. They're called ministers. So in all the Protestant denominations, you're either called a pastor or a minister, but not a priest. Only the Catholic Church has its priests. Okay. The Episcopal Church, which is really closer to Catholicism than Protestantism, it's a slight offshoot of the Catholic Church. The Episcopal Church is what makes up St. Andrew's Priory. And there, you don't have a priest, you actually have a chaplain, and it's actually a female, which isn't allowed in the, in the Catholic Church. So there's a slight difference there. She's actually their counselor. When I was visiting there, the students were very anxious to have a counselor. Uh, I talked to a number of them, and, and they were not particularly happy that their counselor was their pastor their minister. It was, you know, you couldn't go and talk about the problems of your life without getting God brought into the picture. Mm -hmm. And it was not a comfortable thing for them. And a lot of those girls were there, not necessarily because it's a religious school, but because it's a good school, but they were dealing with the religious thing. And you know, Punahou, by the way, you still have to go to chapel once a week. It's a Protestant school. Uh, and, you know, it was something when I was teaching there that nobody was happy about. Uh, not the teachers, not any, the only people who seemed to benefit from her were the, were the pastors who delivered their, their little homilies every once a week or whatever. But anyway, there you go. Okay, so out of this comes another individual, John Calvin, who begins the other iteration, the major one at this time, which is called Calvinism. So if you go to a Calvinist church, uh, then your, this is your tradition right here. And basically he's saying essentially the same thing that Martin Luther is saying with a couple of variations that are really interesting. He rejected um, human-like images of God. It was almost as if he wanted to take art back to the Middle Ages where um, images of God were not permitted. The second commandment says, thou shalt not uh, make graven images of the Lord, uh, which is why we don't see a lot of very three-dimensional, realistic views of Christ on the cross and, you know, the anatomy and Montaigne's from the, you know, bottom looking up at the feet and so on and so forth. But the one that's most interesting to me is this concept of predestination, which is fully articulated by John Calvin. So basically what he says is that as a Protestant, you are, you know, uh, salvation comes only through your relationship with God. You have to read your Bible, don't, don't need the priests, all that kind of stuff, everything that Martin Luther was saying. But he said that you were actually predestined to go to heaven or hell prior to your birth. What, what an odd idea. So I arrive in the world and I cannot be baptized or saved. I'm already decided at that point whether I'm going to heaven or hell. Well, okay, why isn't that a license to party? If, if I know where I'm going, then why not just live it up? Well, he took it a little bit further and said, that the evidence of your holiness, of your piousness, of your religious nature, and your pathway to God and heaven was how well you conducted yourself in the world. How very curious. 
So if I went out and did good works and was ethical and was kind to everybody and lived a hardworking life and made you know, money and take care, take care of my family, that would be evidence that I was saved, that I was blessed, but nobody could know for sure. Whoa, what a weird idea, right? So what am I going to do? Am I going to party? Mm, that's kind of risky. So I'm going to go ahead and work my tail off the rest of my life as a demonstration to myself that I'm saved, but once I get there, I could be thrown into the pit. Who knows? But what this kicks off is something very important. That Catholics, I won't say that they aren't hardworking. There, of course, everybody is hardworking. But Protestants really were hardworking, seriously hardworking people. And they made a lot of money. They become the first capitalists. God never said you can't make a profit. And they took that and said, well, our idea is to go out and work hard. Why? Because it's a demonstration of our religious nature, of our piousness. And it's those Calvinists and Lutherans who eventually would come to America on the Mayflower and other ships and would found the Puritan societies that worked so hard in New England and established America, the colonies, the first colonies. It's their religious nature that allowed them to survive the, the horrible winters and to prosperous and, and we consider ourselves a Protestant nation, not a Catholic nation. In fact, we wouldn't elect a Catholic president until 1960. Uh, John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president. People were very nervous about that. Why? Because they thought he was still connected to the Pope and that the Pope was the one who was like a marionette making him dance, right? We can't have a Pope, you know, running the country. Okay, that's Calvin. All right, so Calvin's moral code was very severe. So if you want to demonstrate your piousness, here's all the things that you have to do. No plays, no dancing, no drinking, penalties for laughing during a sermon or failing to take communion. Let's take this to the nth degree, right? And this is personal for me. This is personal for me because although my father was not a religious person, my father, I think, was a sort of born Calvinist. I don't think that he ever saw it this way. But my father was as strict as a father could be. With no small amount of bitterness, my friends, I actually recount to you that in my junior year, and I was a, all right, I was a honorable mention all-state football player. Seriously? End of the season, playing at Punahou, end of the season, the parents decide to have a party for the football team. We were very successful, almost uh, you know, beat the state champion, blah, blah, blah. And my parents didn't let me go. To my own, I was co-captain of the team. They did not let me go. Why? Not appropriate place to be. 40 years later, I'm still dealing with this bitter pill that I had to swallow, right? So my father sat at the head of the table. You guys saw this in the Middle Ages uh, um, PowerPoint or keynote that I did, right, where I did my shield. And that, that the marketplace of ideas was my father's conception. It was his, he, he gave birth to that in our family. And all nine of us sat around the table. And he sat at the head. There was never a more Protestant family on the planet except that we weren't religious. We just <laughs> didn't go to church. We just acted like we went to church. And my father was the church. Okay, I'll stop now, but you get where I'm going with that, right? Okay, so he was really, you know, no plays, no dancing, no drinking, none of that kind of stuff. Wow, you know. 
Yeah, the devil is in the plays, you know. Go to see a Greek comedy and the devil is speaking in your ear. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So we're going to turn just really quickly to the uh, Reformation in England. And this is Henry VIII, the man who had so many wives. Anybody see the other Boleyn girl? Yes. So this is the focus. Did I put that slide in there? Yeah, here we go. So the other Boleyn girl focuses on the story of Catherine of Aragon, who eventually has her head chopped off. And it's her sister who ends up uh, becoming the consort of uh, Henry VIII. And um, so Henry VIII's conflict with the Catholic Church over absolving or annulling his marriage to Catherine is the reason that England goes Protestant not for any great theological you know, break from the Catholic Church. It's just because he couldn't get rid of her. So you know, he really wanted out. He wanted her sister. Isn't that awful, crass, that, a, that the English Protestant Church is really formed because Henry VIII wanted another woman besides his wife? He did, but in a sense it becomes a protest church that ultimately over time looks more like the Protestant churches than it does the Catholic Church. In fact, it's called specifically the Anglican Church. And if, and if you go to an Anglican church in England and sit down and go through a mass, in fact, it feels more Catholic than it does Protestant. They've got all the trappings, all the gold, all the candelabras, the art and everything. But it's really Protestant because it completely separated from the Catholic Church. He separated himself and that was a big moment. Okay, all right, so the English Reformation is carried out through uh, Edward VI, Mary I, Elizabeth I. This is uh, Kate Blanchett, uh, many iterations on HBO, you know, the queen who married England. She was 40 years the queen of England, never married, married England. See any of those uh, and you're seeing some really good stuff. Um, but these are all the Protestant uh, monarchs. Occasionally a Catholic one would slip in there and usually the results were pretty disastrous and, and something bad happened and so on. But one of the things that these monarchs did was that they took all the lands and the monastery that was owned by the Catholic Church and dissolved them and passed them out piece by piece to secular people, to the Anglican Church and also to the lords and barons and, and other nobility of England. So this was a tremendous dissolution of property that was worth a lot. This was a very significant event. And it really is not safe to be a Catholic in England after Henry VIII for the most part. Okay? So there's the dissolution of all the lands. And then, of course, we go to Spain, and this is really the first place where the Counter-Reformation takes place. So the Catholic Church is not going to take this sitting down. They are going to strike back. And one of the tools that they use to strike back, of course, is the Inquisition. And this is an infamous auto de fe which is where you don't burn one heretic, now called a Protestant, in France called a Huguenot. You don't burn one of them, you burn a whole bunch of them for maximum effect. So this is legal to who? I and mean, the church is the, is the authority. There's no law that stops the church from doing anything like this. And uh, I know, but you're thinking in modern terms, my friend, you know? Okay, so we have the Inquisition, and that, I'm sorry for that transition. That was horrible. I apologize. Do you want me to go back? That's awful. But in fact, 
In fact, there's another transition in Keynote, which is actually burning flames, but it doesn't work on this media card here, which was really a bummer because I was going to have that in there anyway, but I'm sorry. Okay, so we come to the end. So what is the legacy of the Reformation? We have religious changes. We have two churches now. We have a Catholic church and a Protestant church, and the two of them now are pretty much, in terms of total numbers, equal on the planet. The Protestant church is as large and as expansive as the Catholic church is. Both of them have literally billions of members across all continents in every nation. Um, there is still considerable conflict between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, but between 1517 when it starts with Martin Luther and all the way up through the late or the high Middle Ages through the Renaissance and up into 18th and 19th century Europe, there's still a tremendous amount of death and destruction as a result of fighting between these two religious sects. They simply would not accept each other and there was a lot of killing that came about as a result of that. Okay? We see religious persecution and division and it sets the stage for future religious conflicts. And by the way, we also have Islam has gained a foothold. So now we have the three, well, four, right? So we have Buddhism, essentially, or Hinduism, and Protestantism, Catholicism, and Islam. And we have now, by the time we come through the Renaissance, the, the fully established great religions of the world. Okay? And we have less freedom of religion, not more freedom of religion. Even though you get another religion within these religions, especially Protestantism, there may be less freedom even to be free, to be yourself, because your job was to spend your life uh, studying your Bible and working hard and getting closer to God. Okay? Um, we see, obviously, Protestant churches now spring up all over Europe, including in England. This is an Anglican uh, cathedral, an English cathedral. Um, we see the development of uh, Max Weber in the, in the modern age. Max, I know he looks kind of strange sitting up here, but um, this is the sort of justification. He's the first person to write about how capitalism comes about as a result of the Protestant work ethic. I work hard, and that shows that I'm going to be close to God and going to heaven. And as a result of that, I can make money, lots of money. So the first great capitalists are very religious Protestants who are in the pursuit of wealth as a demonstration of their hard work. It's an interesting thesis that Weber puts up there, but we'll get to that later. Um, there's, uh, in the Protestant church, an immediate inclusion of women. So women can actually be at the highest levels of the Protestant churches where they're completely excluded from the Catholic church and still are, for that matter. You can be a nun, but that's a pretty low level thing, but there, there's no, no females whatsoever in the Catholic hierarchy from the bottom to the top. Um, so that's one of the legacies. And the last slide, peace if possible, but truth at all costs from Martin Luther. Love to have peace, but if you don't, if you don't agree, we burn. So there's a real hard edge to Protestantism that says, you know, this is the religion and this is the, this is the construct that's going to go forward in time, okay? So this sets up the film clip that we're going to watch, and we're going to start with that moment when the indulgences are being printed and Martin Luther, it's a, re, it's a dramatization of Martin Luther's uh, uh, angry moment when he sits down and pens these 95 theses, 
and how uh, the church responds and so on and so forth, okay? All right.